Crumby. Good evening. Glad you made it out again tonight. And uh, we are going to get started here. And uh, would you just bow your heads and uh, let's pray together as we get going tonight. Lord, we are so grateful for uh, a great week. Um, thank you so much for the way you have been uh, feeding our souls and how you have used uh, Sunder and Sham to be a blessing to us as a church. And uh, we're, we're just grateful to you. And we thank you that, uh, that you have, uh, as, as Sunder talked on Sunday, you've been providing food, a uh, feast for our souls, a richest fare. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we have been this week, we've been reminded of the delight that we have in you. And so thank you. Uh, for the work that you're doing in us. Thank you for the, the seeds that you have planted in us and uh, for the bread that you have fed us with. And uh, we just ask and pray that you would grow uh, gr grow us in you and that those things you have spoken to us we would not forget and that we would courageously uh, continue to walk in them. And uh, so tonight, Lord, we, we thank you that uh, we could be together again. We open our ears and our hearts to you and anticipate what you might say to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Man, I'm going to invite Sooner and Sham up here to join me up on the platform. I hope you've been enjoying uh, getting to know them a little bit. And uh, um, it's been fun. I, I know we've enjoyed having Sooner speak to us, but it's been fun getting to know Sham a little bit as well. Um, and uh, she's a woman of many talents, of which some of them we won't talk about, right? Right. <laughs> because the word talent is a euphemism. <laughs> It's a euphemism. Euph uh, sorry, I mean, it sounds nice, but, okay. <laughs> but I'm not Thanks sure for explaining he that thinks to me. it's a talent. Yeah. Hey, these guys uh, spent two hours with our staff today and uh, just fielded questions, um, just opened up their hearts, their ministry hearts of, uh, of what it's like to be in ministry together. And as a uh, pastor and pastor's wife, it was a blessing to us as a staff and uh, just a, a, a joy to be able to learn from them. And um, you know, they shared some things there that I, th I think actually would be helpful for us uh, because we always have this idealistic uh, picture of what it means to, uh, well, to, to um, be married um, and to um, do a spiritual journey to get together as a married couple. And uh, you, guys have, you guys have worked through some things in your own lives about, about what that looks like for you. And uh, so talk to, talk to us a little bit about the differences um, that have manifested in your marriage and how they've impacted ministry and how you've sort of navigated through those, those uh, differences together. You know, when we went on our first sabbatical, Sundar spoke to the congregation on the Sunday morning before we left, and he gave a whole list of what he was going to be doing on the sabbatical. And... Uh, and the people were just amazed at this list. And then they came to me and said, and what are you going to be doing? I said, whatever he does not get done. <laughs> so there's a part of me that's almost wanting Sunda to go first. And whatever he doesn't say, I will say. But... Uh, and that'll be a first. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, we were telling the staff we are very different personalities and our interests are different. And uh, so over the, these past 32 years, we have, uh, we, you know, God in his grace has allowed our differences to work to get to really, I think, make us a good team at our church. And when we first came on staff, 
because I, I thought I would always be an engineer's wife. I, didn't, I was not at all prepared to be a pastor's wife, and I think there were few people in the congregation who realized that, because I was getting books given to me, you're the pastor's wife? <laughs> uh, how to be a pastor's wife? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, there are many things we do well together, and that's because of our differences. And so when we have people over in our home, uh, I, I enjoy, you know, having people in the home and uh, the, one of my gifts is the gift of hospitality. And then Sundar is the one who does most of the formal teaching. As you can see, I provide the comic relief <laughs> uh, because his teaching is very intense. Um, and I guess what is good is we, we cover each other's blind spots, if I can put it that way. And uh, so, you know, there are things that I'm much more uh, of an extrovert, so I enjoy people more. And so there are things that are people-related in the church that uh, I feel need to be drawn to his attention. I do that. And at the same time, he's, uh, he's very, a very clear thinker. It's funny, sometimes we go to restaurants with friends and they'll be talking about some of their challenges, and he'll pull out a serviette. And on that serviette, he'll start writing. And by the time the dinner is over, they, they take a serviette home. And on that serviette are some very clear, uh, you know, guidelines as to where they need to go from there. And they really appreciate that. So I'm always amazed that, uh, you know, I could talk till kingdom come and I would never be able to come up with something like that. Uh, but on the humorous side, uh, one of the things we don't do well is premarital counseling. <laughs> because when we have tried it, we come at it so differently that we both start arguing about <laughs> and, the, and the poor couple is looking at the two of us like, I think they need counseling. <laughs> so we've stayed away from that, you know, and so he meets them, he does all of that, and then if there are some issues that, uh, you know, the the bride-to-be wants to talk uh, with me, then she'll come and see me. So. I think uh, another uh, thing where differences show up is that, you know, people always have, have ideas about how couples should have devotions together, you know? And there's this stereotypical, not necessarily bad, stereotypical idea of, you know, get up in the morning, uh, make a cup of coffee, get into bed together and read and pray before you start the day together. Well, Right from a honeymoon on, devotions didn't work very well. So just tell them what happened. Yes, you know. <laughs> and I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> well, one of the things I had always wanted in the husband I was going to marry, and I don't even know where this came from because I was not a very spiritually mature woman, but I, I asked God to give me a husband who would be the spiritual leader of our home because I knew I didn't have it. And like I said yesterday, my mother said, if you don't have it, find somebody who does. <laughs> and so I knew that he would be a good spiritual leader. So I was so excited when we came back from our honeymoon and the first evening he said, uh, honey, we're going to have devotions. And I was so excited because I thought this is what I was praying for. So we sat on the two of us and uh, he started in Genesis. And he read about three chapters and I was, you know, with him in that. The next day we sat down and he read five chapters and I thought, don't complain. This is what you asked for. So, so 
By the time we got to numbers, I said to him, you know, honey, I don't think the Israelites are the only ones who are wandering. <laughs> so we... Actually, part of that story isn't even true, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with Sunda, it's not like a little one verse and then let's put it down. It's like, we've got to do chunks. And, you know, after a few chunks, I just thought, I, I'm wandering all over the place, just wondering, you know. So anyway, we disbanded that. And actually, it, we never recovered in terms of the, <laughs> the formal methods of doing uh, devotional. Again, it is because we, we are so particularly different. At times of the day as well, you know. The time when she's most alert, I'm often at work. The times when I'm alert, she's not. And so it, it was difficult for us to find time. And then the way we approach it is also so different. And so we had to come up with a very different way of uh, connecting at the spiritual level. And the thing that rescued us in the beginning was when our children were born. Um, when the children are young, they, love, they thrive, as most of you know, who are parents of little children, they thrive on structure and repetition and things like that. And I'm a very structured person of the Myers-Briggs personality. And so we just regularly had family devotional life together. And then I would just every evening get together with them. We'd read scripture, we'd slowly, we taught them, we'd sing together. And as they got older, we you know, taught them how to pray. I would teach them, you know, we got some excellent Bible and drama tapes and we'd work our way through those tapes. So it was good. But that was really the only way in which we both would connect together with the children. And then individually when we'd go to pray with them when they went to bed and stuff like that. Uh, and so that was um, one way in which we connected uh, early on. We had a, a common basis in the things that we did with the children. And then the other thing that saved us was the fact that uh, Fortunately, as each one of us developed fairly robust personal lives with God, we would talk about what we were learning. So we fairly early learned to have spiritual conversations about the things that we were learning. Uh, and then much, much later on, I think, and even, even now, we don't really have extended devotional times together, but we just find that connecting often during the day, praying together in the morning briefly, praying together briefly at night, praying at significant times. You know, there are some times in her life when she really feels that the need to be blessed. Uh, if she's going off to speak somewhere or sing someplace, uh, and sometimes, especially when it comes to health issues, she has a doctor's appointment or whatever, those are times when I've realized that she really likes me to bless her and to pray over her. And, and then I, I would just share with her some specific prayer requests when I need them as well. So we found that really uh, the classical model never worked for us. We had to find other ways in which we maintain those spiritual conversations. That is something we have continued to, uh, continue to work at. So that hopefully can help some of you who find, hey, this model doesn't work for us. Don't give up. You know. But working with the family was a huge blessing uh, in that sense. That was one major area, I think, of, of tension in the beginning and uh, learning to adapt to very different personalities, even how we approach the scriptures. You know. And, and you, you guys mentioned, um, I've heard you talk about this, that, that um, you know, even reading books together yeah. didn't work for you. Yeah, right. Because the kind of books that we read were very different. And, you know, in the, in the beginning, in the early stages of my marriage, my approach was much more preachy. And we all husbands know that doesn't work at all, you know. Uh, uh, it works I, you very know, well when, in our in house. The, uh, yeah. in, the early, in the early years when he'd come home from work, he'd say, did you have your devotions? <laughs> so I used to quickly have my devotions thing. And he comes back and say, done it, done it. You know, I can. So 
all that shifted when we both realized that that's really nowhere near as important as, as, as modeling. And I think this is what she said, that really she said, when I saw you walking after God, I didn't want to be left behind. You know? And I think this is a much better way of drawing us along. And so uh, it, we both read the same, usually read the same uh, Bible reading program, the kind of stuff I talked about last night. And we come at these things very differently. So often at the end of the day, she'll talk to me about what she learned as she used those texts to pray for her children and things like that. And that would give me insights that I would never have got from the way I studied the scriptures. And what I learned, I was able to help her with. And so, again, we just found that we had to engage with God differently and then talk about that with each other. So building spiritual intimacy that way was very helpful. Books, most of the books I like to read, she doesn't. Most of the books she reads, I don't. And so we just got used to the fact that periodically each one will read excerpts from the books we're reading to the person. At nighttime, often she does, to unwind, she does a crossword and will sometimes read interesting little clips from the newspaper. And that'll get us going, you know, because they are usually on some social issues of some kind or another. And she said, what do you think about that? And so you end up having conversations like that. So the, the goal is intimacy. Intimacy is not identity. Intimacy is being aware of what the other person is thinking and being able to share with one another at the level of ideas, at the level of feelings, and at the level of our own walk with God. And I think if so long as that's happening, how it happens is probably not as, as important as, as it does. Because you could go through the formal motions of having devotions together and really not have any conversations at all. You know? so, it's much, so that's something we learned. It took a while, it took years, not months, to, to learn that kind of stuff. Just don't give up. Yeah, that's very, that's very helpful, and I think freeing for uh, some of us who feel like there's this, we're supposed to fit in a certain way of, of connecting to God as a, as a, as a couple. Um, and you mentioned those levels of intimacy, intellectual, emotional, spiritual. Right. And so how's, how's that journey been for you guys as a married couple? Um, and, uh, you know, from, you guys are married how, how many years now? 41. 41 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's... It's a great example for us. And um, so how, how has that journey been for you guys in navigating? I mean, you talked a little bit about understanding your differences when it comes to the spiritual intimacy. Um, uh, but, I mean, talk to us about the other areas yeah. and how you develop that. Maybe on the emotional issue, I'm just add to it. Uh, I, I would say that in, in the first 12 years of our marriage, uh, Sham would probably say uh, that, that I was a good father, I was a good uh, husband, faithful provider, good spiritual leader. But something happened in 12 years in our marriage that really awakened me to the fact that there was one area in which I was really failing, and that is I, I wasn't building into her emotionally. I, if, you, if you want to think of emotional investment in terms of dollars in a bank, uh, I wasn't withdrawing anything. I just wasn't putting anything in there. And so it, it, the way it came to my attention was she won a gold medal at a singing competition and didn't tell me. And when I found out about two or three days later, I said, why don't you tell me? She said, you're not interested. And she wasn't complaining. She just stated it as a matter of fact. I said, well, I am. She said, no, you're not. And then she proceeded to tell me how I demonstrated that I wasn't interested. You know? <laughs> uh, the, and the, 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 the part of it that was a shock was that basically she, was, she had learned to live without it. She had good friends and she went to them for emotional support. And to me, that was a real huge wake-up call in my life, that we were not connecting at the emotional level at all. Not, not because there were any problems. It, was just, it wasn't building into it. And so I had to actually, you know, I still remember the night when, when we had a really difficult conversation. I said, well, you're going to have to teach me. She said, well, then you're only going to be doing it just because I told you. I said, that's true, but I can't learn any other way, so that's your choice, you know. Uh, <laughs> 
And so she said, fine. And it took four years. It took, I'd say, it took about four years from the 12th to the 16th or 17th year of our marriage for me to begin to win back that emotional component. Uh, and, you know, and I'm much, much better because of that process. But that was a, a significant challenge in the emotional dimension that happened much, much later. You know, that. And I think at the intellectual level, he's obviously the thinker, I'm more the feeler, but I think what this has, uh, being married to a thinker, has really challenged me to pursue that, that part of my uh, makeup, that I, I will never be the thinker he is, but I certainly could stretch myself. And so because of his influence in my life, I began to engage at an intellectual level with certain, uh, you know, even reading certain people that I normally would not have read, but if he recommended that I do, and it made me do, bring, you know, to, I was actually lazy intellectually. And I think what having him in my life did was alert me to the fact that I can actually think, I can, um, you know, bring to, to bear um, a perspective that was not just emotional level, at the feeling level. And uh, I remember one time when we were in, uh, during our second sabbatical, we took a core, uh, the church we were attending had a marriage enrichment um, program that was being offered where uh, there were different couples in the church who were offering to teach on a particular subject that they themselves had had to work through in their marriage. And this one was on conflict. And the thing they were talking about was how conflict actually can be a good thing in a marriage because you then have two minds that are engaging on a particular issue. And in this particular marriage, that the, the home, the husband was a lawyer, the wife was a counselor. But he grew up in a home where his father was very verbally abusive to his mother. And so he decided, I will never do that to my wife. And so for him, it was never pushing back or challenging. He just kind of was, became very passive. And she began to feel she was very alone in the marriage, that on any issue, she felt like he was just not engaging. And uh, through, a, through a, you know, a series of circumstances, they ended up going for counseling. And he slowly began to voice his opinion and give his perspective. At first, she didn't like it, because now she was getting a little bit of, you know, uh, push back, but they pointed out to us how important it is for two minds to be brought to the table. And, uh, and so I think I would say our marriage has grown a lot in that area. In the early years, I was very passive. I was very, I didn't give my opinion that easily. I know you were thinking that must be hard. You're finding it hard to believe. Yeah. But I was extremely reticent. But uh, through this whole issue, God blessed me with some people in my life during the time that Sundar's talking about, who really affirmed me, who built into my emotional well-being in a significant way that I slowly started realizing who God had made me. And so when we made this shift, I felt a little more um, confident to be able to express my views. And, you know, fortunately, he's a very secure man, so he never kind of squashed that. But it resulted actually in a lot more conflict but it was actually a good thing because I think over the years we have become much more even intellectually sparring partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think after that change in that 12th year of our marriage, both our intimacy level and the conflict level went up because conflict is the raw material for intimacy if it is properly handled. Because you, know? you need to get to know the other person.
the, the ways that things like that, and then you begin to pre. I remember one time, uh, one of the be best cards I've ever given, this is me saying, not her, one of the best cards I've ever given her, which I liked giving, was I like who you are when you're not with me, you know. It's not me, in other words, what somebody else is doing in your life or who you're becoming because of their input, the kind of person that she's becoming makes, and I get back a wife that's, that's so, so much more delightful. And, and so it was just, um, just a, um, a, a good realization that uh, don't be afraid of conflict, you know. And you know, I have to say, I mentioned that this afternoon that when I look back on 42 years of marriage, I, I realized that one of the most important character qualities in marriage, and especially as Christians, is humility and teachability. Because, uh, as I've said, we are very different, and we could have, you know, left to ourselves, really allowed our differences to uh, become, you know, a huge uh, factor uh, uh, in a negative way. We could have, you know, gone our separate ways. But by God's grace, that difference allowed us to go to him and to allow him to mold us and make us teachable so that we could learn from one another. And I would say our differences have really worked powerfully to make us as individuals much more whole and, and then as ministry partners. Uh, and then even as parents, because our children, you know, have been blessed by the fact that they have two very different uh, parents who are parenting them. And I said this afternoon that our kids have often said, Mom, if both of you were like you, we'd have a lot of fun, but we would not get anything done. <laughs> but if we were both like Dad, we'd get a lot done, and then we'd be sitting and having no fun. So, so I think our differences have blessed our children, but I think they've also blessed our church. But that would not have happened apart from the grace of God. Thank you so much for sharing. I did that, that line that Sundar shared, conflict is the raw material for intimacy. Hmm. I don't know if you caught that. We'll, we're going to call that a Sundarism. We'll, <laughs> hang, we'll hang on to that one. That, that is a great phrase. If you're here tonight and you're in conflict, to look at that as raw material for intimacy, I think that that just goes so counterintuitive. Hmm, exactly. We want to avoid it and you know, try and navigate around it and not deal with it. Uh, that's, that's, that's a rich sentence just right there. So thank you guys for opening uh, your lives to us. Uh, would you thank Sham for coming up and joining us up here? And I just want to say thank you so much. You have been such a gracious congregation to us. Um, you've laughed at my jokes, which means a lot to me. <laughs> and uh, no, seriously, though, you've been so warm and, and welcoming and receiving of us just as we are. And I also so appreciate Steve and Trina Fowler as your senior pastor and his wife who have just honored us and served us so, you know, in such a humble and, and gracious way. So thank you for allowing us to be here and for ministering to us. You know, so often we think it's the ministers who minister, but both at our church, we find many times it's the congregation that become the minister to the ministers, and you certainly have been that to us this week. Thank you. And then, Sundar, I want to pray for you. So would you join me as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word? Lord, we thank you that uh, 
that you have used Sunder to be a blessing to us. We thank you that you have used Sham uh, to encourage our hearts. And uh, we just, uh, tonight, are eager to hear what you have to say to us. And uh, Lord, tonight, we just, I just pray that the spirit of the sovereign Lord would be upon Sunder. Mm. We thank you that you, Lord God, you have anointed him to bring us good news and to uh, bring good news to those who are poor in spirit and to, uh, to, s- to proclaim liberty uh, to those who are captive. Lord, you would, uh, you would, through the words that he would speak tonight, uh, open the prison doors to those who are bound. And may this, may this evening be an evening of jubilee for us as we sense greater freedom as we walk in our, uh, our journey with you. Uh, based on the truth that we hear, and that we embrace in our minds and we, uh, we plant in our hearts. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that uh, you, you can turn our mourning into dancing. Mm-hmm. Lord, uh, dress us in garments of praise as we consider how great and how powerful and how supreme you are. Mm-hmm. Lord, we lift you up in this place and we thank you, Almighty God, that we have been given the privilege of coming together and worshiping you. And we thank you through the reminder this week that Sooner gave to us that um, that... Uh, there's many ways we worship. And so tonight, Lord, we choose to worship by listening. Mm. We open our ears, and uh, we worship as we, as we come under your word. And so I, I, I thank you that uh, you are anointing Sunder to bring the word to us tonight. Fill him with your spirit. Uh, may he provide that uh, uh, through you that fresh manna for our souls that we need tonight, uh, that bread. And uh, may you be pleased as he speaks the words that you've given to him. And uh, Lord, we, we receive them. And uh, we, we ask that you would use this, these words that you're speaking to us for the glory of your great name. As in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We've been working our way through these gyroscopes. We've built three of them so far. Uh, the weekend services from Isaiah 55, we talked about a, a gyroscope for making sure our souls get caught up with our bodies by coming to God, stopping, moving from rest to work and not from work to rest, listening to him, allowing him to exchange his thoughts and his ways for ours. Sunday night, we looked at the story of a man who was driven, who did the exact opposite, and we learned about the dangers of impatient and utilitarian and rationalistic worship. Um, And then last night, we talked about the scriptures, how we see the scriptures, not as words that convey information, but a means of hearing the voice of the Lord to build a relationship with him. All of those have been what you might call inward gyroscopes. You know, they deal with our souls and our life of worship. Uh, and, or even, and even if it was corporately, they still deal with our inward life and listening to his voice. Today, in the, in the final and fourth, fourth and final message that I have with you, I want to talk about a gyroscope that's more focused upon our outward life, upon the mission dimension of our lives. One of my favorite movies in terms of its impact, uh, surprising impact, uh, unexpected impact, is Apollo 13. Most of you have seen the movie, have certainly heard about it. It was the Apollo mission that got into trouble uh, because one of the liquid nitrogen tanks, this, the line leading up to that got ruptured in the process and they couldn't fix it, and they had to abort the mission. Uh, And so basically they survived by shutting down the command module and moving into the lunar module until it was time for them to come back. And if you remember in the movie, 
uh, one of the critical elements in their successful re-entry would be when they, got, when they jettisoned this uh, command module and got lunar module and got back into the command module and they had to restart up all the onboard computers and therefore fire up all the batteries. But here was a problem. They couldn't just do it at random because if you just randomly started up the batteries, you run the danger of exceeding the maximum current limitations on those batteries and that was it. They'd be lost permanently in outer space. There had to be a particular sequence in which those batteries would be started up so as not to exceed those maximum current limitations. How are they gonna do that? Well, earlier on in the story, one of the guys who was supposed to be on this mission had contracted, had come into contact with somebody who had measles, and so he immediately disqualified himself. They couldn't risk people getting sick on the mission. And when he was informed of this, he was really upset and he was angry, and he just didn't even want to watch the launch, and, and he went off into his room. And at one point in the movie, they show him kind of slouched in his chair in front of a TV, empty beer cans all around him, unshaven. And all of a sudden, the news he's watching says, we interrupt to bring you a special report on Apollo 13. And he figured, oh, I don't want to hear that. And he went off and goes off to sleep. But of course, when this problem arises, they realize that this guy down below is absolutely critical to figure out that particular sequence. And so this man, who until that time was useless and had to be set aside as far as the mission was concerned, suddenly became mission critical. And so the rest of the movie, or the one key sequence in the movie is that he comes into the space center in Houston and he gets into the simulator and he's working. He's testing out all the various startup sequences to, and every now and then they'd flash back over there, has he got an answer yet? Has he got an answer yet? Because time was going by. <laughs> and at one point he'd been working about 10 or 11 hours and the um, mission commander sticks his head in into the, lunar, into the uh, simulator and asks Mattingly, that's his name, do you want a break? And I'll never forget, that. he said no, if they don't get a break, I don't get a break either. I like, like goosebumps went up on the back of my chin because I immediately thought of all of the missionaries from Rexdale Alliance Church who were not rescuing people who were lost in outer space, but definitely lost in the outer darkness of sin, apart from God. And here we had sent our international workers out to reach these people, and they were as desperately in need of support back home. And I thought to myself, is that the mindset we have? If they don't get a break, we don't get a break either. It's not the way most Christians think when it comes to Christ's global mission. In fact, Herbert Cain in his book, Wanted World Christians, uh, put it this way. Maybe a caricature, but not too far off the truth. He said the typical approach or understanding to world missions in North American churches is like this. One was either a full-fledged career missionary or one was a comfortable, respectable church member with no direct personal responsibility for the evangelization of the world. If the call came, you went. If it did not, you were free to stay at home to do your own thing. The people with the call were regarded as spiritual people who were expected to live a life of faith and make all the sacrifices, living from hand to mouth, enduring loneliness, privation, misunderstanding, and rejection. The people without the call were free to get good jobs, raise fine families, live in the security of suburbia, and enjoy the good things in life bestowed on them by a kind, generous Heavenly Father. Caricature, probably, but uncomfortably close to the truth. It is not the mindset of scripture. And so I want to take you tonight to Genesis chapter 18, which is a passage that has served as a gyroscope in my life to, to be 
not give in to this kind of a mentality and to have instead the mentality of that Ken Mattingly who said, no, no, if they don't get a break on their mission, I don't get a break on the mission as well. Because we back home are as critical as he was to the success of the mission. And this chapter helps me to understand what is involved, three things in particular, to keep me on target here, sitting in that simulator, if you will, doing my part. Genesis chapter 18. It's been a while, uh, almost 20, Abraham's almost 99 years old at this time. Been 24 years since he's received the promise that he was going to be a father of many nations. In chapter 17, his name had been changed from Abram to Abraham. In the middle, he had tried to have, tried to help God out a little bit and following an ancient Near Eastern custom, had, Sarah had persuaded him to try and have a child through her handmaiden. Ishmael was born. Another 13 years went by and still no child that God had promised him. And his name had now been changed to Abraham, you know. And then we read this chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And so he offered them customary ancient Near Eastern hospitality. He quickly tells the servant to get a meal ready, and he prepares a meal for them, and they sit down to eat, and he's just kind of hovering by uh, like a good waiter while in an excellent restaurant to make sure that everything was going well. When all of a sudden, he's surprised by these three people when one of them said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And immediately, Abraham knew who this was. He knew that one of these three people was the Lord God himself because those words were spoken to him by the Lord a year ago, saying, you will have a child through Sarah. <laughs> but... The story gets a bit embarrassing after that because Sarah hears this in her tent. She's not visible. She hears this in her tent and she kind of laughs to herself and she said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, no, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. Now listen, sometimes we, we forget to put ourselves in the place of what this must have been like. I mean, imagine entertaining three people at your home for dinner, suddenly discovering that one of them is God and he just called your wife a liar. <laughs> because that's exactly what happened here. The dinner must have continued in a very quiet mood. And then after dinner, the men get up, and in customary Near Eastern hospitality, Abraham walks them out. And in the context of that after-dinner chat, God speaks uh, almost like a Shakespearean soliloquy, and he says in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What's happening here? Is this story in here just to kind of teach us about hospitality? No. No. 
the purpose of this story with God having an intimate meal with Abraham is to show us in the development of this man's life Abraham being lifted from the status of servant to a whole new level of intimacy with God typified by this after dinner conversation but here's the deal the purpose of that intimacy is not just so he would have the private enjoyment of a relationship with God but that he would be a cooperator with God in accomplishing God's purposes through him for when God called Abraham remember he said I will bless you you will be a blessing and in you all nations of the earth will be blessed his name had been changed from Abram which means exalted father to Abraham which means father of many nations Hebrew names had destinies associated with them and so this this story is portraying for us that development in the life of the servant of God and the Bible tells us that Abraham is the father of our faith Romans chapter 4 talks about that is to elevate him from the status of servant of God to friend of God and in that context God reveals to him his agenda for a particular nation other than his own Sodom I'm about to destroy Sodom why am I doing this so that Abraham will fulfill the purposes for which I have chosen him now keep that story in mind we'll come back to it and move many centuries later to John chapter 15 and you see a parallel situation here Jesus has just finished his last supper with his disciples and he's walking with them towards Gethsemane and he uses language that is very similar to this and he says henceforth I do not call you servants but I call you friends and then he tells us the difference between a servant and a friend he said because a servant does not know his master's business but everything that the father has shown me I have made known to you you have not chosen me but I have chosen you to go out and bear fruit do you see the parallel between the two stories <laughs> there in Genesis 18 God appears in what's called a theophany in the form of a man has a dinner with his friend Abraham reveals his agenda to him and said I've chosen you for this purpose and now the intimacy is for the purpose of this revelation of my heart for the nations so you can become a cooperator with me exactly the same thing is with Jesus he has just had an intimate meal not with one person but with a group of his disciples and he says the same thing you're no longer servants but you're friends and he says the difference between a servant and a friend is that the servants don't know the father's heart but you friends do and why is that because I've chosen you just like he chose Abraham so that you will go out and bear fruit that will remain so exactly the same thing that happened with God and Abraham happens with Jesus and his disciples now you go from Jesus to Paul and then he brings it close to us because we you and I could say well I'm not a patriarch like Abraham and I'm certainly not chosen like one of the 12 disciples of Jesus so what does this have to say to me Paul writing to the Philippians he says this he said brothers I have not taken a hold of yet for that which Christ Jesus has taken a hold of me but this one thing I do forgetting what is behind I press on towards the mark for the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ that those are important words when when Paul says I have not yet taken a hold of that for which Christ has taken a hold of me that contained in that is an understanding of how Paul viewed his salvation Paul did not view his salvation as some decision that he made to follow Christ 
Paul views his conversion as Jesus taking a hold of him. And of course, if you read his conversion story, you know that's true. And you say, well, is that just semantics? No, it's not semantics at all. There's a huge implication of that. Because you see, so long as we see Jesus on our conversion as my choice, he will remain one among many choices that we make. A choice of a spouse, a choice of a career, a choice of a hobby. And therefore, Jesus gets his little portion on a Sunday morning and maybe a midweek ministry, just like everybody else. It's, it leads to a compartmentalized understanding of our faith. But if we view conversion as Christ taking a hold of us for his purposes, then everything else, the, the family that we choose, the hobbies, our career, how we spend our time and how we spend our money, everything gets integrated under this great purposes of God. So what is true of Abraham, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. What is true of Jesus' disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, is true of you and me. We have not been taken a hold of by Jesus so that we can enjoy a private life of intimacy with Christ and, and all the things that I've talked about in the previous three gyroscopes and go to heaven. No, he's given us this incredible gift of intimacy, hearing his voice through the word, enjoying him in this wholehearted, passionate worship, both individually and corporately so that he might reveal his agenda for the nations to us so you and I can become cooperators together with him in accomplishing the agenda that he had for Abraham to be a blessing to the nations of the world. That's it for all of us. Robert Coleman of Asbury Seminary put it very well, another one-liner that I've never forgotten. He says, if your lives are not being lived on the wavelength of the Great Commission, your lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. If our lives are not being lived on the wavelength of the Great Commission, our lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. So the first word I want to leave with you, I'm going to give you three words for this kind of, is integration. We need to integrate our life under this Great Commission. Let me give you a couple of examples of what an integrated life might look like. <laughs> there used to be a man in our congregation, he's long gone home to be with the Lord, and you know, he loved to play golf. I don't play golf, but many people do. He loved to play golf, but every year he chose to go to Florida for a week of golf, coinciding with our annual missions conference in our church. He just wasn't interested. That, that's a man who completely did not understand the text that I've taken you through. It was about as in, unintegrated a life as you can imagine. He was a, a, a businessman. Now, in contrast to that, here's, some, here's another person who... Gives you an example of an integrated life. Who also took a vacation but for a very different purpose. In uh, 2007 or 8 I was speaking in Thailand. And uh, to a group of pioneers, international workers, about 500 or 550 of them. They had a, they had a wonderful uh, multicultural worship band out there. But way near the back there was a kind of a diminutive gentleman playing the bass. So one morning I just sat across the breakfast table from him. And I discovered he was a pharmaceutical engineer from the west coast of the states. I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, back home in, in our church, our worship pastor was telling me about this gathering of international workers that was going to be taking place in, in Bangkok, in Thailand, and how these people were coming from four years on the field, not having had the joy of worshiping in their own language for five or six days and listening to the teaching of God's word. And my worship pastor asked me whether I'd be willing to just come and play bass. They needed a bass player. So he took nine days vacation on his own expense, went all the way to Thailand and led 550 international workers in worship. 
One man takes a vacation to run away from a missions conference. Another one takes a vacation to go all halfway around the world so international workers could. See the difference between an unintegrated life and an integrated life? One man's choices were under the umbrella of the Great Commission. The other man's choices were unrelated to the Great Commission. That's, that's one example. Here's another example of an integrated versus an unintegrated life. I was speaking many years ago at Camp of the Woods in Speculator, New York, and I was walking back after an evening session with the director of the camp, and the previous week had been a week of uh, world missions, and he said, the speaker was telling us that one of the biggest obstacles that they were finding of sending more workers overseas were grandparents, because he said grandparents did not want their children to take their grandchildren away four years away from them. Now, don't get me wrong, I have six grandchildren, and the thought of them going away someplace and me not being able to see them for four years is extremely painful. But the fact of the matter is, painful or not, that's part of the cost of living an integrated life. And so many of these grandparents, I don't know who he was referring to, many of these grandparents, that is an example of an unintegrated approach. In sharp contrast to that, here's another um, grandparent. Uh, we have a couple in our congregation, Trevor and Patty Russell, and over the years, uh, these people have gone to some of the most difficult areas in the world. <laughs> they spent two two-year terms in Sudan, one in Aceh, and one time they were heading back to Afghanistan as if they hadn't had enough. So I said, what does your dad think of this? He said, oh, all my dad said was, son, we committed you to God when you were born. You go with our blessing. And now they have a grandson. Uh, they have, that couple has one son. They're expecting another child. And another six months or eight months, they're going to be going permanently in Indonesia for four or five years. So that's an example of a grandfather who lives his life integrated. It's going to tear his heart away, but he says, I gave you and my children to the Lord. Go with our blessing so that you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. There's just a couple of examples of how Christians can live either unintegrated or integrated lives. Integration is foundational. We must reach a point in our life where we realize that we have been taken a hold of by Jesus so that everything in our lives can be integrated under his purpose, which is that the name of Jesus Christ will be acknowledged amongst every tribe, people, nation, and language one day. And you and I are involved in that. And the purpose of intimacy is the revelation of his heart and his agenda so we might become co-workers together with him. That's the first thing. Integration. Now, let's go back to the story in Genesis 18. What did Abraham do after God kind of announced in this soliloquy form that he was going to destroy Sodom? So verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. And... The rest of the story is Abraham kind of haggling with God. You can't do that. You can't destroy the people of Sodom. Come on, God. What if there's 50 righteous people? Ah, okay. What if there are 40 righteous people? What if there's 30 righteous people? He won't let go of God. Now, here's the question. Why was he so interested? What was Sodom to this man? Well, there were a couple of reasons. First of all, he had a nephew living there. Lot was living in Sodom. And secondly, earlier on in the book of Genesis, Abraham had fought a battle. There were a group of five, uh, a conglomerate of five Babylonian kings that had come to attack another conglomerate of four kings of whom the king of Sodom was one of them. And that king had captured many people from Sodom, including his nephew Lot. And Abraham had marshaled an army of about 300 people, gone after them, rescued his nephew, and rescued the people of Sodom. 
So you see, Abraham had not only a nephew in Sodom, he had actually invested battle effort in liberating the people of Sodom in a military battle. This man was interested because he had invested. So that's the second word I want to focus on. Integration is the first word. Investment is the second word. Because it is investment that produces interest. And it has a lot more to do than, than with money. It has to do with relationships. The same gentleman who used to take off uh, every year to Florida for golf during a missions conference. Let me fast forward you a few years later. And I had gone to visit him one day. And I had not even been in the home for five minutes when out came a map of the globe and he spun immediately to Indonesia. <laughs> out came a huge book about the country of Indonesia. How come? What happened to this guy who used to go play golf every time we had missions conference? Now within five minutes he wanted to tell me all about Indonesia. You know why? He had a son and a daughter-in-law now working in Indonesia. Investment, you see? As soon as there was investment, a relational investment, the interest level went shooting up. If you look in the scriptures, you will find that without this matrix of investment between local churches, unnamed local churches, and international workers, of whom Paul was the chief, the entire missionary effort in the first century would have ground to a halt. I mean, we know all about Paul, this amazing missionary. You read the book of Acts, and I'm going to walk you through just some verses so you can get a flavor of it that how much of the success of Paul depended upon ordinary people building heart-to-heart -heart relationships with him. Acts chapter 21 by itself contains several examples. Let me read, read to you a few verses from Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 verse 4. This is Paul on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 3, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was, un was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. That was verse 4. Then verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. They stayed seven days, and yet at the end of seven days when they went out, the entire town with their children all made the trek to the beach to bid them farewell. Obviously, those seven days were spent in building the kind of relationship with the Apostle Paul that they were sad to go. Who were these disciples? Nobody knows their name. <laughs> then, verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we uh, arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them there for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of seven and who stayed with him. And then it says, after many days were over, they went to Jerusalem and they stayed with the home of another disciple. In, in this brief journey, four different stages, they just stayed with unnamed disciples who then helped them on further along in their journey. And Paul would often invite himself to people's homes. In Romans chapter 16, uh, right near the end, he read these words, Romans chapter 15 verse 31, sorry. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. After a very, very difficult time in his mission field, he was anticipating coming home to spend some time with some people so that he could be refreshed by them. <laughs> I always smile when I read that because it says, so that by God's will I may come to you. What about the will of the person to whose house he was going? That wasn't mentioned at all. He just simply took it for granted. Of course you're going to let me come to your house. Why? Why? Because you and I are on the same mission, aren't we? That's taken for granted. Now, God may not want me to come there, but if God will, get ready. I'm coming. Yeah, was essentially his point. And then uh, he writes the same thing to Philemon later on when he says, uh, just get a guest house ready for me. I'm about to be released from jail, so I'm going to be coming there. Paul took it for granted, and the people seemed to be happy that he would take it for granted. I, I call this the ministry of refreshing and encouraging, where people open their homes to build heart-to-heart -heart relationships with the people who are actually involved in doing the work of the Great Commission. This ministry of open heart and open homes, which involved two kinds of contact. When they were close by, this kind of ministry of hospitality, and when they were away, sustained contact. Without this, as I said, the whole missionary endeavor would have ground to a complete halt. And if you read the scriptures, you will find that this was so important to Paul that he went to great lengths to preserve these relationships. For example, right at the end of Ephesians, after talking to them about putting on the whole armor of God and say, please pray for me, pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer, pray for me that I may declare the word of God boldly. And then he ends with these words. So that, and everybody stops there, right? I mean, the great weapons passage in Ephesians chapter 6 from 10 to 20. Do you know verses 21 on are crucially important? Here's what it says here. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul, and this is just not an exception, Paul not only assumes he will be welcomed with open arms into the homes of people, and they build such heart-to-heart -heart relationships that seven days later they are sad to see him go, he also makes sure that he stays in contact with them and sends news from the field so they can remain connected with him. So contact at home through the ministry of hospitality and contact through information exchange when they were away are the two parts of this ministry called refreshing and encouraging, without which, as I said, the missionary ma mandate would have completely ground to a halt. What does that look like today? What does refreshing and encouraging look like? Exactly the same way, contact at home through hospitality. When you have international workers that are close by here, bring them into your home. Um, and it can be through the service of meals, providing a place to stay. Sometimes you may not be able to do it yourself. And when this couple came back from our Afghanistan once, another couple who were not in a position to be able to have them over to their home, bought a special gift for them and sent them away for four days to a really nice hotel. After having been in such a difficult place for so long, they said, you guys just need a break, break for three or four days. And they provided that for them. Just refreshing and encouraging, which is exactly what Paul said, I need after difficult times. Uh, some of them in their home, like a, a couple just by the, well, during the time that we are here, have just come back from Tajikistan. And during the time they are here to have a third child, they need a car. 
Someone provided a car for them during that time. Very necessary. There are all various ways in which you minister to the people, refreshing their hearts by the use of your material resources. But, but the home is probably one of the most important ones because that's where they open up their hearts and they talk. Sometimes they can come to a church setting and in the busy settings in local churches, like I've heard this often from many international workers, that, that in a tight schedule they're given three minutes. Here they have spent four years of their life pouring out their heart in an unbelievably difficult situation and we've got three minutes to hear what you have to say. But in a home, <laughs> over a meal, over a cup of coffee, they got two, three, four hours to talk, to cry. And one, one lady from our congregation who works uh, with the sex slave trade kids who, who have been rehabilitated, last time she was home, uh, she was home for dinner with Sham and me, and then one time Sham just invited her by herself and said, look, you are ministering to such precious souls. She said, I want to bless you. I want so Sham just washed her feet for her, you know. God moved her to do that, and she was so moved by this, you know. That's, uh, that's, you can't do that in a service. Well, maybe we should try it someday, I don't know. But <laughs> not readily. But in the privacy of a home, there are all kinds of tender ways in which you can minister to people who come with such heavy burdens upon their hearts. And they need us. They need this ministry of refreshing and encouraging. Paul took it for granted. He expected the people to, to, to open their homes. They did. Because it's in your homes that you form heart-to-heart -heart connections. And when you invest in that heart-to-heart -heart connection, then continued involvement becomes easier. So not only contact at home through hospitality, contact when they're away is crucial. Reading their letters is so important, or emails or whatever form they come. And you know, you don't just read the letter for information. Just like last night we said, you don't just read the Bible for information. You don't even read missionary letters just for information. You read it to listen to their hearts. I remember one, one occasion we got a letter from a worker from our church who was working in an uh, international school overseas. And she said, this letter does not, con I still have it in my files, I'll never throw away that letter. She said, this letter I'm sure has not been an easy one to read. I don't have a lot of good news to report. She said, but I sure hope you will listen to my heart. I've never forgotten that. Learn to read between the lines. I remember one of our workers who worked for six years in a field where there wasn't a single convert. And on one of his letters, he quoted something from David Livingston. <laughs> and Livingston had said, do not forget us laborers of the night. There is going to come a day when every sermon preached will reap a harvest of souls. But don't forget that we laborers of the night are also faithful servants of the gospel. Do you think my friend put it in there because he wanted me to know about David Livingston? Or was he talking about himself? Please don't forget me. I have no fruit to report to you after six years of work. But I too am a faithful laborer of the gospel. You, you read these letters because you want to read between the lines to listen to their hearts and continue to form those heart-to-heart -heart connections. Not only do you have contact when they're away by reading their letters, you write to them as well. Now what kind of letters should you be writing? E or emails or Skype, whatever it is. What kind of it? Let me tell you what kind of letters not to write. One of the international workers in our church actually got a letter once from someone and it went something like this. At the recent missions conference, I made a commitment to write three letters. I finished two, yours is the third. <laughs> That's not likely to encourage anybody. So what kind of communication from us to them encourages them? Well, the Bible tells us. Paul writes in, in Thessalonians. Let me see if I get the text in here for a minute. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You see what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying we're going through lots of difficulties. We're going through lots of hardship. But when news came back to us from home that you are thriving in your faith and that you are growing in your faith, now we really live and we can handle it. So when you write home, when you write to your international workers, tell them where you're growing in your walk with God. Tell them how, how you, how, what has God, what's God been teaching you in these last three, four days? Write to them about that. Or something happened in a weekend service here and God met you. Hey, you need to know what happened to me last weekend. What, you know why that encourages them? I mean, you would think in their difficulties, why would they want to read about us? I'll tell you why. If, you, if your communication to them is telling them about how you are growing with God, how God is stretching you, and how your faith, hope, and love are increasing in various ways. How you are attempting to obey God here. Do you know why it encourages them? In my first time I ever had a chance to speak to international workers was 1986 in Indonesia. And one of the sermons I preached was from Psalm 2, why I am a missionary optimist. And I told stories at the beginning of the first wave of the international workers from our own church, many of them had got into all kinds of difficulties and medical difficulties, physical attacks from thieves and all kinds of trouble. So there wasn't a lot of optimism in that message per se. At the end of that sermon, uh, one, one of the ladies came up to me and she said, Brother Sundar, that was a really encouraging message. Now, I was expecting any kind of adjective but not encouraging because it really was not a message with lots of success stories in there. So I asked her about it. I said, what was so encouraging about that? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, it is not success or failure but oneness in the mission. The fact that your church takes global missions that seriously, that's what encourages my heart. So you see, when you write home these kinds of letters to them, when you write to them and say, let me tell you what's happening in my life, what that says to them is, our friends back home are taking the cause of Christ as seriously as I am taking it, and therefore in my troubles and difficulties, I am greatly encouraged. What a stark contrast to I've written two letters, yours is the third. You know. So contact at home, for the building of open homes, open heart, and contact when they're away. Reading their letters to listen to their heart, writing the kind of letters, emails, what have you, that lets them see your heart for God and where you're growing. And then another thing, meaningful gifts are an amazing way. In that first uh, trip in Indonesia, I stayed at the home of uh, Mike and Kathy Milligan, a young couple who were teachers in the, in the school there. And so Kathy had this little May basket, a little porcelain figure. Uh, and she said, oh, our women's ministry sent us that from our church. And she said, I cried when I got it. I thought to myself, well, why would you cry over something like this, you know? you know? I couldn't think of anything more irrelevant in Indonesia than a little porcelain figure. Oh, she said, well, let me tell you why. She said, uh, first of all, she said, do you see the, the little basket in her hand? Uh, she said, well, that's, that's a May basket. Uh, she said, at home... Every May, I used to take May baskets to all the shut-ins in our church. 
Secondly, do you see the flowers inside that May basket? Those are daffodils. That's my favorite um, flower. And thirdly, she flipped it over. She said, this person, you see the person who made this, I collect stuff made by him. She said, that's why I cried. How much thought went into that gift? They knew that at this time in the year, on my first year on the field, in May, I would be finding it really difficult because I'd be missing my ministry at home. And so they chose a May basket, they chose daffodils, and they chose a, a, a person that uh, she collects. She said, now I was crying by this time. You know. <laughs> you, do you see, do you see what, what refreshing and encouraging looks like? Be thou warmed and well-fed. That's the, you get the call, I don't get the call mentality. This kind of refreshing and encouraging is if they don't get a break, I don't get a break mentality. I really get a picture of what this looks like. In, and it'll flow out integration first. With that, if that doesn't happen, you're not going to live this way. So integration first, investment second, and then the last piece, and with that we're finished. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Abraham continues to pray. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. Again he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry. I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. What was going on here? By the way, the third I is intercession. The revelation of God's agenda for the nations provoked intercession. It's an interesting, this is the first recorded prayer in the Bible. Abraham had just had his name changed in the previous chapter from Abram to Abraham. This, and now he gets a revelation of God's heart, God's plan for a nation under judgment, and the first thing this man does in the fulfillment of his new destiny is intercede. What does that say to us? That intercessory prayer for the Great Commission is the first and foremost foundational expression of an integrated life. Abraham's first expression of his new destiny was to pray. Not to strategize, but to pray. And Don Richardson, uh, speaking at a seminar many years ago, was the first one who pointed out to me the fact that not only is this the first prayer in the Bible, not only is the first prayer in the Bible a cross-cultural prayer, intercessory prayer, for a nation other than the nation of the person who was praying, it is the first cross-cultural prayer to be recorded in any literature anywhere. Other gods, other people prayed to the gods, their own gods, for their own people. But the first recorded prayer in the Bible is a man praying for the destiny of a nation other than his own. What does that tell us about intercessory prayer for the Great Commission? Abraham's first expression was prayer. 
And if you read through the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, and we don't have time to do that today because that's a whole sermon in itself, you will find that Paul ties the success of every dimension of the Great Commission to the prayers of unnamed men and women all over the, uh, the world. Uh, one of the most dramatic illustrations of that close to home is this. How many of you here have ever heard the name of a woman named Pearl Good? Anyone here? Uh, don't feel too bad. I've been asking this question for 15 years. And I think only found one time two people heard about it. But Pearl Good was a lady who lived in Pasadena, California, in a small one-bedroom apartment. And fairly early in her life, God gave her a, a burden to pray for a young evangelist. And so she would pray. And some days she would pray all night for this evangelist. Eventually, Pearl Good died and went home to be with the Lord. And that evangelist's wife was invited to come to the funeral and to give her tribute. And at one point, after giving a tribute, pointing to the casket holding Pearl Good, this lady said, therein lies much of the secret of Billy Graham's ministry. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Every hand will go up here. How many of you have heard of Pearl Good? No one. What is it going to be like in heaven when we get up there? Who's the champion? Who really evangelized the hundreds of millions of people that Billy Graham reached? Some unnamed woman for all practical purposes. That's in the New Testament. Paul's letters through his prayer requests. You read them yourself. He will tie the success of every dimension of the success of, of the missionary mandate to the intercessory prayers of unknown men and women. In another one of these memorable one-liners, a bit long, John Piper put it this way. He said, you know, Christians wonder why prayer fails. He says, prayer fails, he said, because we have taken a wartime walkie-talkie that God gave us to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive battle orders, marching orders for the battle, and we've turned it into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den. Can I say that again? Prayer fails because we have taken a wartime walkie-talkie that God gave to us to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive marching orders for the battle and we have turned it into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den. That's the difference between an integrated and an un unintegrated approach to prayer. Jesus taught us the same thing. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. What did he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is heaven. And then to help us do that, please give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. All the second half that we focus on most of the time. So intercession is so foundational. So here's my suggestion. And they all work together in tandem. Because if we've been having them in our homes when they're close by, if we've been attempting to build heart-to-heart -heart relationships so our feelings are actually involved, if we've been reading their letters carefully to listen to their heart, if we've been taking the time to write to them about our spiritual journeys, then we're going to have a whole lot of fuel to pray strategically. We'll have lots more to pray with than God bless them and be with them. And the prayers, if... The whole point about this first prayer and this haggling that seems to go, it's almost like Abraham is in a third world market, kind of negotiate the price down. 40, 30, 20, 10, what was really going on? I remember one person trying to give an explanation like this. Well, Abraham, Lot, Abraham had Lot there and Lot was married. So that's two people. 
He had two daughters, that's four people. They had two husbands, that's six people. And surely by now he must have led at least four people to Christ, to, to, his, to God. So there must be ten people. And so Abraham stopped at ten because he kind of got God down where he wanted to. <laughs> well, I've actually heard those explanations. But I'm, the person I'm intended to is uh, John White in his book, Daring to Draw Near. He says this, Abraham was satisfied. He did not need to drop his figure any lower. Whether Sodom was consumed or not, the universe was on a solid footing. The storm might be terrible and its havoc beyond belief, yet all was well. Abraham had grown into a larger man with a greater God. Prayer had changed him. God's purpose for inviting him into the board meeting had been accomplished. The chairman himself drew the meeting to a close and left Abraham to the wonder of his new discovery. Now it so happens that Lot was delivered because if you read chapter 19, it ends by saying God remembered Lot and delivered him. But Abraham didn't know that when the prayer meeting ended. See, the point of prayers like this, this kind of taking God seriously, laying a hold of him, haggling with him, is that we get changed in the process. <laughs> in, that same comment, in that same book, John White says, contrast this with the so many if it be thy will prayers that we pray so quickly. He said the phrase if it be thy will is more often than not a cop-out. It means I don't have to come to grips with God. I need not bother to find out what God's will is. Nor do I have to exercise faith in the character of the invisible one who works miraculously in the face of impossible odds. If it be thy will is lazy pseudo-reverence, which when translated into Spanish comes out as que sera, sera. <laughs> Look at the way Abraham prayed, God, far be it from you, righteous God, you're going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? You can't do that. Shall not the God of all the earth do just? Well, then after praying that way, he kind of realizes, you know what? I'm on dangerous ground here. <laughs> and he says, Lord, I'm just a man of God. But he can't keep quiet either because he's up against a God that he cannot understand. He said, God, I'm a man of dust and ashes, please. But I've got to ask you this, 40, 30? Lord, please be, don't be angry with me. 20? As I've always said, such, kind, such praying... Whatever it is will never be boring because you really don't know when the next words out of your mouth might be the last words out of your mouth. Right? <laughs> but that's how we're intended to pray. When we get into this whole thing, when we start praying for the Great Commission, you're going to face a God you cannot understand. Try praying for people who are working in the sex slave trade. You, every day you're going to ask, what kind of a God are you? Do you think we are more compassionate than you are? You have the power to sweep all these people away and you're not doing anything, God. The very first prayer in the Bible is a prayer that immediately precipitates us into an engagement with God that's uncomfortable. But that's the first prayer in the Bible. Getting involved in the Great Commission is going to throw up all kinds of difficulties. But in the whole process, you are getting changed. Because you are taking God seriously. You are grappling with God seriously. Uh, Spurgeon put it this way. If you are sure it's the right thing for which you are asking, plead now, plead at noon, plead at night, plead on. With cries and tears, spread out your case. Order your arguments. Back up your pleas with reasons. Urge the precious blood of Jesus. Set the wounds of Christ before the Father's eyes. Bring out the atoning sacrifice. Point to Calvary. Enlist the crown prince the priest who stands at the right hand of God and resolve in your very soul that if souls not be saved, if your family not be blessed, if your own zeal be not revived, yet you will die with this plea on your lips and with this importunate wish on your spirit. That's the kind of praying 
that he wants us to have. That's the kind of fuel we get when we read the scriptures like we read yesterday and when we read the missionaries. So we not only read this voice, we also listen to the voices that come this way from our brothers and sisters. That's why this passage is like a gyroscope for me. Integration, you and I have been chosen so that as friends of God who enjoy intimacy with him, he reveals his agenda for the nations to us so we can cooperate us together with him. Secondly, investment. As we invest relationally in people through open hearts and open homes, hospitality when they're closed, sustained contact when they're away, that involves heart-to-heart relationships, our interest continues to go. And thirdly, through intercession. As we fuel those prayers both with the nature of God as well as their particular situations and bring them together into prayers that make a difference. In that same movie, in order to get Mattingly to come to the simulator to do his work, they tried calling many times. He wasn't answering because of course he was just in his drunken stupor sleeping. He wasn't interested. So finally two men went to the house, knocked on the door, nobody opened, they broke down the door, they went to the bedroom, they walked into the bedroom, pushed the curtains out, the bright light started streaming in and yanked the guy out of sleep. And then of course within five minutes he was a completely changed man. He knew there was a crisis and off he went. I thought that also was a powerful metaphor. There needs to come a time in the life of every Christian when something like that happens. When we're kind of woken up from the sleepy stupor, where we've kind of left the great commission to those people who are called while we carry on with our lives here. And we need to be yanked out. The light of Christ and his purposes needs to shine into our heart enough to say, no, 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 no. I am as mission critical as they are. (laughs) They go out to do the work and I am crucially important in this case. Living an integrated life, building relationships with them and interceding to the Father for them. If I can sum up this message in one line, you either get into the shuttle or you get into the simulator. There is nothing else. Or John Piper put it this way, when it comes to the Great Commission, there are goers, there are senders, and the disobedient. That's all. (laughs) It's sobering, isn't it? But it's also a joyful adventure. No matter what happens in my personal life at times, sometimes when things are not even going well in the church, having trouble at home, this one area of my life gives me sanity when nothing else does. When I'm involved in some way in this, I put my head down at night thinking, today has been a worthwhile day. That kind of assurance comes because this is God's agenda. This is his unchanging purpose for the nations as giving to you and me the incredible privilege of being partners in that. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you that your, your, uh, your word is like seed that has power to grow all by itself. That's what I pray for. I pray that these seeds that have been sown from Sunday and Sunday night and Tuesday night and tonight, you know exactly the hearts, Father, that you have prepared to receive those seeds. And thank you that that seed has the power to grow all by itself. I pray, therefore, it will take deep root in the way in which you want it to, and the particular seeds that you are nurturing will have life in themselves and will bring forth fruit to the blessing of each individual and to your glory among the nations, we pray in Jesus' name.
Thanks again, Sundar. And I want to just uh, wrap us up by um, asking um, three questions that relate to what Sundar shared with us tonight. And these are three questions that um, that would be worth writing down to engage in conversation um, either between you and God or to have across the table over dinner or have a cup of coffee with someone and, and talk about these things. And uh, the first question is this, and these just flow from what sooner, sooner share with us. And the first one is a personal one, is am I living an integrated life? Is, is my life integrated under the grand purpose that God has given to us, this, this destiny of, of blessing the nations? Is my life integrated in that? It's an important question for